Okay, we're continuing our series beginnings going through the book of Genesis. And it's been a couple of weeks since we've been there. We left in chapter 2. And just kind of a quick review of some of the things that we've talked about Remember in chapter 1, we kind of had this introduction. The, the book Genesis means origins, and we got this kind of wide picture as we saw that God created the heaven and earth, and God gave us the title, or we have his name as Elohim. And Elohim was revealed as the creator, as the spirit, and also as the spoken word. And those things, he established that understanding of who he, he was. And in that chapter, we saw a dynamic that took place between God and creation. God being the, the personal noun, God was the I, and then all of creation was the it. But there was something unique in that creation because man was created in God's image. Let us create man in our image. And we talked about that word our and how it encompassed who God was. But not only was man made in God's image, it told us at the end of the chapter that God rested and started what we know as the Sabbath. That that day of rest, the Sabbath, was going to carry all throughout the Hebrew history. It's a very important day. And we talked about how at that time, as Moses was writing, the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt, that their worth was based on how many bricks they could make. The more bricks you make, that's about all you're worth because that's your job. And God was helping them to see that you were not made for making bricks. You were made in my image, and there's going to be a day of rest where you acknowledge who I am, and not only who I am, but who you are, because your identity is found in the fact that I created you. And so we see that there's this definition of man, but man is still dealt with as part of creation. And then we get a little more focused in chapter 2, and we saw again that Elohim gave us his name. So now it was Elohim, and it was, there's M, finish it, Yahweh. This is the Lord God, and we saw how it got much more personal, that God now gave us a name. He gave us his name so that we could understand it. And so now we had the God who is the I, and we became the you. We have this personality. Not only that, it became much more intimate in that we were created, molded from the earth, from the dust. In fact, there was that play on words where Adam's name is similar to that of the ground, which is Adamah. And so it's kind of like, and God took Adam and made him from the Adamah. And we see this kind of poetic dance that's taking place throughout this book. But Adam was created, formed by God, and then it says that God breathed life into him. And we talked about that to some detail, how that breath of life, the idea of breath, and spirit are actually the same word. The word was ruach. That's the same word that's used for breath. It's the same word that's used for spirit. It's the same word that's used for wind. And the idea was when you breathe, God has given you life. Breath and life are connected together. When a person dies, they take their last breath. 
the Spirit, something inspires you, it, it fills you. These words are connected, and it's a very important connection that's taking place as God made man a living being, and it was personal. We talked about that that breath being like a kiss of life, like it being that you know resuscitation. It was interesting. I had a few comments that people felt, because we showed that video, and people were like, what is that video? It's like a love story, and you're talking about Genesis chapter 2, and we we're trying to understand that this was something very personal and intimate. And when we think of the word intimate, oftentimes we just think of physical. And so you have a hard time. Well, I I have a hard time of thinking of intimacy and God at the same time. But that has more to do with our problem than with God's problem. You see, God is love and he loved us and he expresses that love to us thoroughly. And so the foundation of Genesis we're starting is that God has created us with purpose, with intention. We are made in his image. We are unique in that way. God has given us his life, breathed his spirit into us, made us living beings. There is something unique about man compared to all of creation. And as this is going on, we're seeing now our worth isn't based on just what we do. It's based on who we are. And it's tragic when people don't recognize their value because they don't understand that they've been created in the image of God. And if we don't recognize the value of people, we will never represent Jesus. And God is giving us that clarity and understanding of what's happening. And so it ended in chapter 2 that the man and the woman... It says in chapter 2, verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. In chapter 3, it goes on. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had, God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman, you put her with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. All you ladies are laughing. (laughs) The woman said, the serpent. Not as many of you are laughing that time. I just want you to know that 
Same thing is happening, but we have less laughter going on. The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With pain labor, you will give birth to children, painful labor. You desire, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Where do you begin? It starts off with the serpent, and it says the serpent was more crafty. Now, we know that the serpent, in Revelation it says that the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. And so there is this idea of the serpent is not just an animal. Something more is going on. Now, is it an animal and the animal is speaking? I don't know, maybe. I I don't know how it took place, but something took place where the devil, the Satan, this evil, now uses this animal to speak to Eve. And there's another play on words here, and it takes place actually with chapter 2, where it says the both were naked. The word that is used there for naked is the word arumen, and the word for crafty is arum. And so again, there's this little play on words. They were naked, a rumen, but he was crafty, a room. And there's something that's taking place here. And this idea of them being naked but not ashamed is real important because we're going to see what is this tree of knowledge of good and evil. What does it give them insight to? And this shame is a big part of what that is. And something starts to take place at the very beginning when the serpent speaks to Eve and it says, the Lord God made the man and woman and all these things. He starts the conversation and he says, did God really say? In his conversation with Eve, there's something missing. He uses the word Elohim once again, but what we don't see is the word Yahweh. Oh, this thing's stuck in here. There it is. He eliminates Yahweh. So now, God is no longer personal. God becomes distant, that thing. And where it was God, I, 
creation, it, God, I, people, you, specific. Now it becomes I, Eve, Adam, and God becomes it. God becomes distant. He's no longer personable. It's almost like they're talking behind God's back. Did God say, where's God? Is he not present? Is he not there? God is spirit. We know God is everywhere, but they were not aware of him because now God is just out there. Have you ever noticed when you are engaged in behavior that you shouldn't be? You're doing something and you know it's wrong. Maybe you're slandering someone. Maybe you're you know, involved in an area of sin that you shouldn't be in. And you believe in God, but at that time, do you feel like you're close to God? Do you feel like he's there present with you? Or is he distant? You see, because if we have this understanding of God being close to us, it's hard to address those things in our lives that we shouldn't if God is right there with us. Or have you had times where maybe you say something and you know you shouldn't have said that that was mean? Maybe you're talking to your husband, your wife, or a friend, and you lash out against them and your words sting. And as soon as you say it, you say, oh, that was a bad thing to say. I wish I didn't say that, but you can't get it back and all you can do is apologize. Why? You're just aware of that being wrong. There is an understanding. It's as if God is right there saying, hey, don't say that. Hey, don't do that. You see, when you're by yourself and you think God is distant, it's really easy to engage in things that you shouldn't because he's not pressing in on your conscience. And so it's easy to behave in a way that you think it doesn't matter. Why? Because God's not here. He's there. And so the craftiness here begins in the conversation where God is no longer the Lord God, Yahweh. It's just Elohim, the God who's out there somewhere. And he's no longer personal, and he's no longer caring for them in that way. And then what happens is he says, did God say you can't eat of any of the trees? She goes, no, we can eat of the trees. We just can't eat of the one tree. Oh, well, you can't eat of that one because the day you do, you will be wise and will be like God. And all of a sudden we see that there's this understanding of, well, maybe there's more for you and God is actually withholding something good from you. And we have this idea of being discontent. If there's more, I want it. Now let's just suppose that this tree actually was good. Let's suppose that this tree would make them wise. This tree had a lot of benefits. They'd like glow in the dark or whatever. You know, this tree would do something good for them. God placed the tree. It's his tree. God created the garden. It's his garden. God created them. They belong to him what would give them the idea that it's okay to take what belongs to God for yourself? This idea that I want what you have, it permeates our society. It, it, it's part of our nature, this idea of discontent. You, you put a bunch of children in a room 
and there's a great toy, but none of the kids are playing with it, they could care less. You throw a shoebox on the floor, one of the kids gets it, and all the kids want the shoebox. Why? Because I want what they have. And there's this bent that we have where we always seem to want what someone else has. And it always looks a little bit better. And we see this in so many areas. You know, it's amazing the sports figure who is upset because he only makes $1.2 million a year. That's low, right? It's probably $7.2 million a year. And the reason he's upset is because one of his competitors makes 7.4. Right? And you think about that, I'll take your point too. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll take your point whatever, man. But the discontentment comes when it's compared. And, and so now all of a sudden it's like, well, there's something that you can't have. And even though it belongs to God, and even though God breathed life into you, God is withholding something good from you. I think about the things that I've done, the things that I've done that weren't good, things I'm ashamed of now when I look back and I think of these things that I've done. And, And a lot of times, the reason I step into these areas is because I think there's gonna be more there for me. I think that if I engage in this behavior that I'll actually fulfill my life more. I mean, that's why people use drugs or alcohol or abuse those things. It's because, well, I think I can find something more if I engage in this. Back in the hippie days, you know, they would drop acid or start taking hallucinogenic drugs so that they could have an experience. Why? Because I'm not experiencing enough, not saying I did those things, but that would be the reason, if I did, why I would do them. I'm wanting to experience something else, something more, that there is not, I'm not satisfied with what is here, that there must be more, and so I'm going to engage in this thinking that there's something better. And what we're saying is that what I have is not enough. What we're saying is that this that I've been given is insufficient. And to truly be happy, I need a little bit more. I need a little something else. I need a little pick-me-up. I need a little bit more coffee or something. We're getting personal now. And so this discontentment starts to brood. And she sees the fruit that it's good for food. You can eat it. It's pleasant to the eyes. Remember, we saw that God made the trees pleasant to the eyes. Well, this one's pleasing too, and that it's able to make one wise. And so she says, I want what I don't have. Why would God be withholding something from me? And she partakes. I want us to think about our lives and where we are with discontentment and what that can do to us if we allow it to move us in the decisions that we make. Let me talk to some of you who are single here. And you're not happy being single. 
You want to be in a relationship. You want to be married. And you have the idea that being in this relationship will fulfill you in some way. And the reality is when you get into a relationship, you have a whole other set of responsibilities that you're going to take on. But entering into something with the idea that this is what I need to fulfill me is forgetting who you are, who God is to you, and moving from that place forward. So yeah, it's good to be in a relationship. It's not good that man is alone. But looking for a relationship to be what satisfies you, you will be disappointed. If you are unhappy and single and you get in a relationship, you will be unhappy and in a relationship. It's how it works. And if you're a person who takes and abuses and you're single, when you get into a relationship, it'll be the same thing. If you're a person who's needy and single and you get into a relationship, guess what? You're going to be needy and in a relationship. Because wherever you go, right, there you are. That was profound, wasn't it? You can quote me on that one. You take who you are with you. And so what needs to happen is there needs to develop a contentment. How do you do that? By becoming the person you need to be. You see, I think you should definitely be proactive. If you want a date, you need to ask someone else or take care of yourself so someone will ask you out. You need to do the things that are right so that that happens. I'm not for these people while I'm just waiting on God. Okay, I don't think he's going to ask you out, but go ahead and wait. You see, I think God gives you the means to ask out or to be someone who wants, someone who would want to ask out. And you see, you need to take the steps to be the person you need to be so that you are attractive to the right person. Because the last thing you want to do is engage in a relationship because you're discontent and you just want a relationship. And you put aside what's important to you because I just, I just want a man. I don't care what kind of man. You will. You will care what kind of man when you get that man that you don't want. I didn't want this man. You wanted a man, you got a man. But I didn't want this man. And so you need to develop the character to know what it is that you want so that when it's there, you don't settle for less. You're not desperate. And you see, this is where we struggle because I don't want to minimize loneliness and how it affects who we are. I don't want to minimize the the need that you have in wanting to be with a person. I don't want to minimize that at all. It's important. It's legitimate. But understand first that if you're moving into that place in an area of discontentment, then you're tainting what can happen. Because you're looking for fulfillment in an event instead of that event to continue who you already are. And no matter who the person is, they are not going to fulfill who you need to be. And you will be let down. It's just like the drug that you take that is supposed to be your fork and help meet that need, it will not be what you expect later on. 
And it doesn't matter what it is. You always need a little bit more, a little bit something else, because pretty soon that discontentment starts to eat at you. And we start treating our souls like we do food or air. I I need to breathe all the time. I need to eat all the time. And so in my soul, I think I need to find things for it all the time. Why? Because I'm not content, but it's not the same. Your soul is hungry, but it's hungry for who you were made to be. It's hungry for the relationship that you were created for. And from there, you move forward into the things that you can do as a person and with God. And so what's taking place here is there's discontentment and it starts to weigh in on how she thinks. It starts to weigh in, well, the food looks good, it's good to eat and it'll make us wise. And so they take it and they eat. Their eyes are open, verse 7, they realize that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made a covering for themselves. And so we see that now they became wise. What did it bring? It brought shame. You see, before they were together naked and not ashamed. Now they ate, and the first thing it did is it brought a disconnect between them. Adam and Eve all of a sudden were like, whoa, I got no clothes on. Give me a minute. I got to sew some fig leaves together. (laughs) What happened? Awareness brought the shame. You see, God wasn't withholding something good from them. God didn't say, well, I'm going to put this tree here, but it's really good for you, but don't eat it. And then you wonder, why did God put the tree in the middle of the garden? Why couldn't he put it like on a hill somewhere where you had to climb and get up to it, right? Why is it right there in the middle? But you see, I don't think it would matter where it would be. And it's not like there was only two choices. There's the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. They had all kinds of trees. All kinds of good choices for food. Things that could be refreshing. There's just the one. And again, it's representing something. It's representing this trust that the one who made you knows what's good for you. I don't believe that. I, I think I need that. And so the one tree, got to have it. And you think about ourselves. I mean, we look back and you see the story of Adam and Eve is our story. This, this is our story. See, we all make choices, don't we? But instead of there just being one tree that we have to worry about, it's not like you have a, a tree of knowledge of good and evil looming in your backyard, right? Kids, don't play by the tree, you got a plant of knowledge and good and evil on your desk. You know, oh no, stay away from the tree. No, now we have all kinds of choices that we can make. They had one, but we all make the choices. And so as they make this choice, their eyes are open, but what happens is they are aware and they are ashamed. It's not a good thing. When my boys were younger, probably about five, six years old, we went to a park. And the kids would go and play at a park. We were meeting some friends there. And our way back from the park to the car, there was a magazine on the ground. It was a porn magazine. And one of my boys walked by and he saw it. 
And he came running to me, and I'll never forget his face. He was just like, Dad, I saw this on the ground. And, it, and he started going into deal describing this, and it was like innocence just got robbed from him. And he no longer saw women the same way because something had entered in his mind that was different. And it was heartbreaking to see my five-year-old son see that, exposed to this, and all of a sudden be like, whoa, there's that around here? I didn't think about that. And it was a little too much too soon. And innocence is a terrible thing to lose. And so innocence is lost. And it was a terrible thing to lose. They weren't ashamed. And so now we see that this awareness, that this transgression against God brought shame with each other. You see, it didn't just affect their relationship with God. It reflected their relationship with each other. And then we're going to see it actually affected their relationship with everything. Then verse 8, man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God. Here comes back. Who is he? Yahweh. Elohim. It's not just God. Here is your God, the Lord God. He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Again, this is a very poetic picturesque. It's not that God was physically walking. It's giving us this understanding, kind of giving us human terminology so that we can grasp what is going on. And they hid themselves from the Lord. Shame makes you want to hide. If you do something that you shouldn't do, sometimes you don't want to go and deal with it before God. You'd rather just tune it out. And that's why a lot of people do abuse drugs, alcohol, and those things. It's like the shame of how I'm living, I don't want to deal with it, so I'm going to numb it. And so they hid themselves from each other by covering themselves, and now they're hiding themselves from God. Now, is that the person you want to be hiding from? First of all, it's kind of silly, right? But when God approaches them, he calls them and he says, where are you? And I think that's interesting because it's not like God didn't know. Oh, you're behind the palm. I didn't see you there. What God is doing is engaging the dialogue. See, he's making the room for repentance. He's making the room so that restoration can take place. And and that restoration has to take place in a conversation. There has to be an understanding where it's not that God didn't know where they were. He wanted them to know where they were. He wanted them to understand, well, I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? Well, because I ate, you know, because I was naked. And then I love it says, who told you you were naked? What conversation are you hearing? See, because God didn't see them as naked. But now this understanding, this transgression opened their eyes and it made them feel naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? 
I wonder in our lives, who's speaking to you? Who's defining who you are? Who's defining who I am? Who's telling you you're not enough? Who's telling you that you're naked? Who is telling you you need to meet this standard? Is it people? Is it society? Or is it God? Because you will find a discontentment that eats at your soul until you have the conversation with the one who created you. And God says to them, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat? Of all the trees, did you go to that one? And they said, well, it wasn't my fault. It was the woman that you gave me, by the way. (laughs) Just wanting you to know how she got there. I was asleep. All of a sudden, she's there. And so Adam's really blaming her. And then the Lord God actually speaks to the woman and says, what have you done? Now, there's transgression. There, there is wrongdoing by both Adam and Eve. You can't dismiss that or make one better than the other. But there was an action that was committed, and it says it was Eve. And what she did was put into an effect what would be happening. The the severity and the tragedy of this moment is felt in the heartache of every room, everyone in this room today. The, The tragedy of what took place is something that we experience daily, that we see daily. That there is a setting into motion something here that is going to be horrific. And so God says, what have you done? And she says, well, the serpent, God doesn't ask the serpent. He just not going to listen to the serpent. He just says the serpent is cursed. Are you above all livestock and wild animal? You'll crawl on your belly. And I have an idea that this is an idea of how he brought men low. The where you've brought man, again, this idea of the dirt that man was brought in is now coming back to this is your dwelling. And then he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. We'll touch on that a little bit more later. And to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, I've had people say, well, that's not fair. Why do we have to have pain and childbearing? Which makes me think, was there no pain before this? Which also makes me think, when did this happen? This whole chapter 3. We think it happened like the next day, right? Was it a day? Was it a week? Was it a year? When did they actually, this happen? What if Adam and Eve lived for 10 years before they took this tree? We don't know which leaves a lot of other questions that could happen in a year between Adam and Eve. But all of a sudden, there's going to be pain and childbearing. And that's not fair. A lot of times we think of things as when there's a curse or where there's these consequences, we think of, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you punishing me? And again, we don't recognize that it's the consequences of your action. It's like if someone jumps off the building, God, why did you let me splatter on the pavement below? 
Well, you jumped off a building. And it's not God's fault that you jumped off the building and suffered the consequences. If someone says, I don't know how I got here. I'm in jail. I don't, I don't know what happened. You robbed a bank. Yeah, but I, I don't know, you know how I got to that place. You got the gun. You put it in your jacket. You went to the bank. You see, there's the consequences that lead up to what happens. And we need to own those things that we do that bring about the consequences. And so it's not like God saying, I'm going to get you, women. Yeah, you're going to have pain in childbirth. Yeah, take that. And you men, you're going to watch TV while they're having babies. <laughs> no, we're going to invent Lamaze, and you have to be in there too. <laughs> and, and so these curses, if you want, and, and man's or women, or they're not actually the ones that are cursed. The, the serpent is cursed, the ground is cursed, but they're dealing with the curses as well. And the curses seem to be very relational. You know, the consequences are dealing with the relationship, the enmity between the serpent and the woman, the dysfunction that's going to take place between the, the man and the woman, and the severity of man's having to live and exist in the world around him. It's very relational. You know, God didn't bring about this judgment and, and because you ate of the tree, now when you eat bread and pasta, you will get fat. You know, that's the curse. Like, oh God, why do you hate Italians? You know, what's going on? It, it, it's, it has to do with relationships. It has to do with their interaction with each other and with the world around them. Remember, before they were at harmony with God, harmony with nature, harmony with each other, and harmony with themselves. There was this connection that took place that was holistic, it was whole, and now it's all been fragmented. And so now there's the problems that come along with this fragmentation, and one of them is there's going to be pain here in the childbirth. The other one is you're going to have to work, and it's not going to be easy. And there's going to be discord between you and the woman. There is going to be all kinds of problems that take place. And I don't want to go into too much detail into the deep problems that are taking place here i'm sure we'll cover it again but what's happening here is the disconnection is leading to greater discontentment you will not be satisfied with each other any longer you will not be satisfied working the ground and the things because they had to work in the garden before that Have you ever met someone who likes to work in a garden some of you are out there Oh, I love working in the garden. Like, why? It's dirt and shovels and stuff. Maybe it's because I have a construction preset, you know. No, we had to dig holes and it wasn't fun at all. But they're supposed to, at one time there was this joy and contentment and now there's going to be more labor. There's going to be more discontentment. And we see that it starts to fuel itself and become more and more in the discontentment and so Adam names Eve, gives her the name because she would be the mother of all living. And she's being given the name now because of what is going to take place, primarily because of what was talked about earlier. Back when it says that there will be enmity between the serpent and the woman. You see, most believe that this is actually a sign that the Messiah was going to be born. 
And it was the beginning of something that was going to happen. It wasn't the end. It was something that was going to develop from here on. At this point on, history is going someplace. You see, when this all came crashing down, God didn't say, I'm done. You blew it now. God immediately started the wheels for something to happen, for this redemption to happen. And the time would come where there would be a child born from a woman who would bring about the restoration that would crush his head, even though he would bruise the heel. And we're talking about Jesus and the crucifixion here. And the woman is going to play the pivotal role in this taking place. Christ was born of a virgin. And so she has a role that even in this difficulty that she's going through, that there is going to be something that is redeeming by it. And so God here at this time when things crumble starts in motion something that would bring hope. And so Adam says, well, she's the mother of all living because from her, the Messiah is going to come. And so there is going to be this future hope. And so they start even looking at that point, I believe, for that hope as they give her the name. And then God has to make garments and he takes animal skins, which means there had to be a sacrifice. Because there is a consequence to the things that we do. And it affects the world around us. You know, Romans 8 tells us that all creation is in groaning. We think that if we do something wrong, it only affects us. But God is saying, no, it affects everything. Way before quantum physics, you know, the idea of one thing having this chain reaction effect you know, that the environment is going to affect how we live and what we do can actually affect the environment. You know, who would think using right guard can cause ozone problems? You know, doesn't that sound like magic? All I'm doing is stopping BO. You know, I'm not trying to destroy the world. But all of a sudden there's this idea that, no, there's more happening. And our starting this in motion is starting the deterioration of everything that we know. And as everything is collapsing and coming apart, God is trying to reestablish something. And so God tells man that from the dust you came to the dust you're going to return. But he also tells him that there is going to be a hope. And this hope is important because this hope is something that is going to take place in the future. God is going to give us and redeem this time with us. And In Hebrews, he tells us there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their work just as God did from his. What's he talking about? This theme of rest, this theme of God made things holy, is going to permeate all the way and is fulfilled in Christ. Where now Christ is our rest. 
And so all the struggle that man had to go through from the toils of what he's done, all the the wrong decisions that are out there, now God says there is one decision that you can make that can change all the bad decisions. There's one thing that you can do that can reconnect you and I together. There is one thing that you can do that can bring about the wholeness that you need. And that one thing is Christ. And this rest that you were given is going to continue and be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so now God has taken what was once one man did this and all calamity came. Well, even so more, the man Jesus comes and he restores all these things that he buys us back, that he makes us new, that he makes us whole. And that's why it's significant that Jesus, when his disciples were there, he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. What's he doing? He's recreating us back in God's image so that we can now be in restoration with the God who made us. See, the story doesn't end here. It actually is beginning. And it's a tragedy, but it has hope. It's a love story that God doesn't give up, but pursues us all the way to the person of Christ and says, I will restore what took place back then. And so all that is going on here in Genesis 3 does not leave us without hope. As this is being written, it's to explain why are we in this condition? Why are people so self-centered? Why are people so hurtful to other people? Why are we the way we are? You see, it's not just about Adam and Eve. I've done enough wrong. I've hurt enough people. And so have you. We know that. What do we do with this condition of who we are? How did we get here? It's explaining. You made a choice. So, we can make another choice. There's still a choice that can be made. And it's not just a once-for-all choice. It's a choice, okay, I want, I want, what you have for me, Christ. But I also want the life that you have for me. And so I need to breathe of that life daily. I need to intake that spirit that lives for you daily. I need to inhale the spirit of God and I need to exhale that to the world around me. I need to be a participant in the things that you're doing. And so I I make a choice today that I'm going to live with you and I'm going to make a choice tomorrow that I'm going to live for you. And guess what? You're going to have difficulty on day three or day four or day five or six or seven, but you still have the ability to make the right choice. The book of Genesis is about choices. The whole Old Testament is about choices. The Hebraic mind did not see man as helpless and that God was in control and did everything. No, God has the freedom to do what he's going to do, but you have the freedom to do what you're going to do. And so this is all about the choices we make. Are they being made because you're discontent? 
You're not happy. You want what someone else has. Are they being made because there's this selfishness in you? Or are there... Are they being made because God has given you life and you want to give that life to others? What is the source and the reason for the things that we do, the choices that we make? And mark this story well because it repeats itself in all our lives. The wrong choices have catastrophic consequences. How many of us look back and say, if I could take back that day in my life when I did this thing and I ruined this relationship, if I could take back the choice I made here and I said this to that person, if I could take the time back when I did and made the wrong choice, make that today. Today we make the choice for our tomorrow. We are deciding what our future will be because that is our sacred obligation. It is the most spiritual thing any person can do is choose. And so before us today, just like before Adam and Eve in the garden, stands the choice. And we need to choose. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy to read a story like this and put it in the category of just story. But it plays out as a reality in our lives every day. And the truth that is brought to light here that we've read is brought to bear in our lives continually. And so, Father, I ask that you would help us to see the importance of the choices that we make. I ask that you would help us to take stock in where we are at and where we are going and see that what we do today is who we will be tomorrow. And so we have the opportunity to build our future right now. And Lord, I I do want to lift up those who are struggling, those who are hurting, those who are lonely, those who are living in a place of discontent. And Lord, they're aware that they don't like where they're at and they want to be somewhere else, but they're just not sure how to get there. They're not sure how to get rid of this loneliness, how to get rid of this hurt from the past, how how to get free from these things that are in our lives, Lord. I pray that they would see that the choice they make and the next step will lead to the life that they want. Lord, it doesn't happen all at once, but we do harvest the things that we plant. And so may we plant lives that will bring about love for you, good for the world around us, May we plant things that are unselfish, things that are caring and loving. May we plant our future today. Speak to us still. Find us wherever we're hiding. And Lord, may your words resonate in our hearts. As you say to us, who told you you were naked? May we hear your voice as you clothe us with your righteousness and what you've done. Make us whole, we pray.
And I do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.